Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Charles Dickens begins his classic book, A Tale of Two Cities, with these famous lines. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Perhaps we might simply leave off the first half and say we are living in the worst of times. In fact, for several reasons, we might conclude that we are living in desperate days. Sky-high inflation, showing no signs of turning around, leaving many of us to wonder if we're going to have enough money to retire someday or even if we're going to have enough money to live in the future. We're constantly checking the price of a gallon of gasoline, wondering if there's any sign that it might reverse course and go back to more reasonable levels. When we can find what we want in the store, it is costing us more than it ever has. Russia is still fighting with the Ukraine. People are still fighting with one another. This country is more divided than at any point in our lifetime over a host of topics, some of them controversial, some of them not, including, of course, the current debate concerning abortion. Gun violence makes the news seemingly every day. And there's another shooting every week that seems senseless, And yet it continues. Everyone sees the problems. I'm not telling you anything that you don't recognize already, but nobody seems to have the solution. The world has gone crazy. We tell one another or we mutter it to ourselves. We finally look like we're coming out of the pandemic, but we don't necessarily like what we see on the other side. This doesn't even count the personal problems, trials, and tribulations that many of us are going through, whether it's financial, relational, emotional, or spiritual, or perhaps all of them rolled up into one. We are living in desperate times. But we are not the first, nor will we be the last. As we begin our study of the book of Ruth this morning, we are going to see that there are some women in this story that likewise are living in desperate times. The tendency for us is to downplay the desperateness of their situation because once again, we know the end of the story. We know how it turns out. We call it a love story and like your Hallmark movies, everyone is happy in the end. But we're not starting at the end. We're starting at the beginning. And in the beginning, it is not such a happy story. Where do we turn when times are desperate? Your answer to that question might go a long way in determining whether you will find peace or further turmoil. Some turn away from God during desperate times, while others turn to God. And we're gonna actually see that both are going to be the case in this story. Today, we're just going to look at the first five verses of this book, but I promise you in the weeks ahead, we'll speed it up. 
but we've got to start slow so that we can understand the background to what is going on in this story and so that we can get a handle on the fact that these women are indeed living in desperate times. So let's look at Ruth chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. If you don't know where the book of Ruth is, Joshua judges Ruth. So it comes right after the book of Judges, and we'll see why in just a moment. Chapter 1 and verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. We are talking this morning about desperate times, and I want to show you four reasons why these women were living in desperate times. And the first reason is because there was a leadership vacuum. We don't often think about why the books of the Bible are in the location or the area that they're in in our Bibles. We just sort of assume that that's where they belong and where they've always been. But there are older versions of the Bible, particularly versions of the Bible in other languages, where the books of the Bible are in a different order. That applies to Ruth. Some place the book of Ruth alongside the Psalms. That's because the book of Ruth ends with a genealogy of David, and since David wrote the majority of the Psalms, some people place Ruth near the book of Psalms. In other books, of, uh, in other versions of the Bible, uh, Ruth comes after Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 31, the Proverbs 31 woman. And then Ruth is placed after that as a living example of someone who models that Proverbs 31 woman. But of course, in our English versions, we have the book of Ruth after the book of Judges. And it is because in verse 1, we are told that that is the time frame in which this story takes place. It was during the time of the Judges. Now, I say story, but I want you to understand that I'm talking about a historical story. This is, not a pro this is not a parable, a story made up to teach a spiritual truth. This is a historical story. These ladies really existed. These events really did take place. This is not a myth. This is a real-life family facing desperate times. We know that David reigned over Israel from 1011 until 971 BC. And this book was probably written in the early portion of his reign. But it took place prior to that. It was written during his reign in all likelihood to sort of justify his heritage and his genealogy. But the story takes place prior to that, prior to the time when Saul becomes the first king over Israel. We do not know who wrote this book. The best two guesses are Samuel or Solomon. And I'll spare you the details or the pros and cons of each one of those. Now, judges are not like the judges that we have in our court system. 
These judges were local leaders. That is, they were military local leaders of a portion of the people. And if you read the book of Judges, you'll discover that there is an ongoing theme in the book of Judges. That is, the people would sin against God. God would bring judgment upon the people, primarily using other people, that is, enemies of Israel. And eventually, the people would cry out to God for help. And in their desperation, God would hear their cry, and God would send a judge, a local military leader, to deliver them from whatever enemy had risen against them. And then that cycle would merely continue again. It is a very dark and desperate time during the life of Israel. In fact, it is summed up in the last verse of the book of Judges. Just flip back over there. Look at the last verse in the book of Judges. It says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's not the first time that that's, that statement is made in the book of Judges. That certainly sounds like the epitome of a leadership vacuum, doesn't it? No one leading, no one guiding, leaving them to do whatever it is they wanted to do. Also sounds a lot like our own day, doesn't it? No one has a right to tell me how to live my life. It's my life. I can do with it whatever I want to, and no one, be it parent or government official or anybody in between, has a right to tell me how I am going to live my life. Not even God has that right. After all, it is my life. And with that kind of thinking so prevalent, is it any wonder that we live in chaotic and desperate times? that we too are facing a leadership vacuum. And I am not pointing my finger at the White House, though it does include that. And I say that regardless of which party happens to be living in the White House. I'm talking about leadership vacuum across the board, from the White House to our local government officials, and I'm not c confining it to government officials. I'm talking about all kinds of segments of society, leaving us to ponder the question, what's the answer? What is really the, the solution to the problems that we face? Nobody seems to know, but I think this book gives us a clue. What is the answer to the leadership vacuum? We need a king. Now, I realize that we do not have royalty in our country, unless you include the Kennedys. We don't have royalty. We were established without that. And yet some of you are fascinated with royalty. You follow what goes on in the royal family in whatever country they're in. I know nothing about the royal family. But some of you follow everything they do. I'm not saying that we need to change our government so that we have royalty. I'm not talking about a king like we find in some of the governments in Europe. One of the main purposes of the book of Ruth seems to be, as I alluded to earlier, to justify the genealogy or the lineage of King David. But we know, of course, that King David was a precursor to King Jesus. And that is the king that I'm talking about. We need a king in our lives. And in fact, we have that king. If we will admit that and submit to him and recognize his throne and his authority. So number one, these were desperate times, not only then, but now, because of a leadership vacuum. Number two, these were desperate times because of a physical famine. Our story begins in the town or city of Bethlehem with a couple and their two sons. Now, Bethlehem in today's world is 
merely a suburb of Jerusalem. It's just a few miles away from Jerusalem. And as you're traveling through there, you hardly even notice, unless there's the sign there that you see, that tells you you've gone from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. But in biblical days, when we hear the word Bethlehem, we, of course, think of the birthplace of Jesus. Ironically, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. But it was anything but as this story begins. A famine is something most of us have never had to deal with. An inadequate supply of food for our family or for a city. Famines feature prominently in the Bible and as a result, we often see the individuals that are affected by it sojourning from one place to another. This happened at one point during the life of Abraham, during the life of Isaac, and during the life of Jacob. And now it is happening to a man whose name is Elimelech, leading him to make some serious decisions that are going to affect his family. Now, famines were typically caused by one of two things, either weather or war. That is, if there was a prolonged drought, the crops would be affected, and in an agricultural society, that meant there was going to be a loss of food resulting in a famine. Or an enemy could besiege a city, that is, they could surround the city, cutting the city off from the surrounding farmland, and over a prolonged period of time then, the city would face a famine. Now, since this particular famine seems to be a local one, meaning that it was not widespread, scholars believe that this famine in Bethlehem was the result of war. Judges tells us in chapter 6 that there was a time when the Midianites would come upon Israel on a regular basis, primarily during the time of harvest, and they would destroy the fields and steal their crops. So it is possible that Judges chapter 6 is the background for the time period in which the book of Ruth takes place. Famine was often used by God in either case, be it by war or weather. It was used by God as a judgment upon his people. Now, we are not told specifically that this is the case when it comes to the book of Ruth, but it certainly is possible. God's blessing was seen in an abundant harvest, and when there was the lack of a harvest, it was seen as the judgment of God. And if this were the judgment of God, again, we don't know for certain, but if this were the judgment of God, then there is a clear response. What are the people supposed to do when God is bringing judgment upon them for their sins? And that is, they are supposed to repent and turn to him. But that is not what Elimelech decides to do. Rather, he decides to run rather than repent. Now, I realize that I might be making a leap here, and you might want to conclude that desperate times call for desperate measures. And you might say that there's nothing wrong with Elimelech leaving. After all, he needs to do whatever is necessary to provide for his family. But I remind you that the majority of people in Bethlehem suffering from this famine did not leave. And they survived. We know that because when Naomi goes back years later, there are still plenty of people there. Furthermore, the family tragedy that we're going to see played out in these first five verses could also be seen as a further judgment of God upon this family. Now, hear me real carefully here. I would not say that today. 
I would not make that conclusion in our world today. I do not believe that a family tragedy is the result of the judgment of God in our day, but in this day, it certainly could have been. My point is simply that Elimelech likely did not make the best choice when faced with this dilemma. He should have joined with his neighbors in repenting of sin and turning his trust and faith toward God that God would provide. After all, Elimelech's name means my God is king. Remember I told you a moment ago, that's what we need. Elimelech's name means that, and yet he didn't turn to God in this time of crisis. Again, you might argue that others sojourned during family famines and that wasn't a judgment of God and you would be right. In some other cases, God specifically told them to leave. That does not appear to be the case here. But a lot of my conclusion as to why Elimelech made this choice has to do with where it is that he chose to go. You see, this is not just a decision like you and I might make between whether we should take a job in Atlanta or whether we should take a job in Knoxville. This is not a decision that many people are making to move from California and come to Tennessee. This is far different than that. To seek refuge in Moab was problematic because the Moabites and Israel were certainly not on the best of relations. The Moabites were descendants of Moab. Moab was a son born to Lot's daughter through the immoral relationship with her own father. And the people continued to be known for their immorality and their worship of another God, who of course was no God at all. There was a history of Moabite women leading Israelite men into idolatry. In fact, if you go to Numbers chapter 25, you will see that God judges Israelite men. Some 24,000 of them in that chapter are killed because they have gone astray with Moabite women. It was the Moabites who refused to allow uh, the Israelites access. They did not feed them nor give them water as they were transitioning toward the promised land. And as a result, they, they actively hired a man by the name of Balaam to curse Israel. So they were no friend of the Israelites. And in fact, as a result of that incident, God judged the Moabites and said they were forbidden from entering the assembly of the Lord until the 10th generation. And so many people believe that is just a way of saying permanently. They were not to be part of the people of God. More on that in just a moment, but the point here is that the Moabites were no friend of Israel, and for Elimelech to go there seeking refuge shows how far he has fallen. I found throughout my ministry that in desperate times, sometimes people flee from God and from God's people. They forsake God when times get tough. They forsake the church of God and they go out on their own. That's why at funerals, I often urge families to cling to God rather than run away from him. And Elimelech does, uh, does make a decision that's going to bring his family food, but it is also going to bring about a host of other consequences that he likely did not consider. And I'm certainly not threatening anyone here this morning, but I am saying that running away from God and his people during desperate times is not the answer. Instead, you might discover that it's going to prolong your desperate times and bring on other consequences that you had no way of knowing. So these are desperate times, first of all, 
because of the leadership vacuum. And then secondly, because of what we've just seen and the fact that there was a physical famine. But thirdly, these are desperate times because of the family tragedy. By verse 3, Elimelech is dead. And in a patriarchal society, this is all the more troubling. Who is now going to provide for Naomi and her two sons? They have fled their homeland for greener pastures, but now they face another, perhaps even more desperate time. We do not know how old these sons were. We do know that they eventually married, and more on that point in just a moment. We are told that they lived there 10 years, and most scholars believe that that encompasses the the totality of the time that Naomi was in the Moabite territory, not just the number of years that they were married. But regardless, the two sons die as well after marrying local women. I mean, how much more can one woman take? Naomi reminds us a bit of Job, doesn't she? Everything has been taken from her. To lose one man in the family is tragedy enough, but Naomi lost her husband and her two sons, and now all she has left are two Moabite daughters-in-laws. And to top it all off, neither one of them have born children, which we've said in that society was extremely troubling. In a society that believed that it was God who opened and closed the womb for these two women to be childless, however many years they had been married, would have been seen as a judgment from God. Certainly, we know that Naomi believes that because of the way she's going to react when she gets back to Bethlehem, something we'll see next week. People say that losing a child to death is the most excruciating form of grief and tragedy, and I hope I, nor you, will ever personally experience that. Death of any sort, of course, is hard to deal with, which most of us do know from experience, but multiple deaths within a few short years and at young ages. I do a lot of funerals and I do all kinds of funerals. Sometimes the funeral is a celebration. That's more and more popular these days. People don't want to seem to grieve, and so they want a celebration of life. And that's fine when the person has lived a a long time and died a, a natural death. But other times, funerals are filled with grief because the circumstances and the tragic nature of the death. Someone has died, like we might say, before their time. They've died at a young age. And this is the case here as Naomi's immediate family has all been taken from her, leaving her alone in a foreign land. Now, I realize that she has Ruth, and I realize that she has Orpah, not Oprah, but Orpah. But she doesn't know just yet how integral Ruth is going to be to her future. So again, because we know the end of the story, we tend to think, well, Naomi's not alone. She has Ruth, but she doesn't know that just yet because she's going to tell them to stay in Moab while she goes back home. But we know that's not what Ruth is going to do. This is another place where knowing the end of the story blinds our eyes to the depth of the tragedy that this woman is facing away from Bethlehem. We sometimes get so focused on our own life that we lose sight of what others are going through. We complain about this or that, never stopping to think that we have it far better than most. Sometimes it takes a tragedy in someone else's life. Sometimes it takes a tragedy that we see on the news to remind ourselves that we have been blessed. Those of you who have experienced the death of a spouse or a child can certainly identify with Naomi. 
you realize that it changes your life forever. Nothing is ever going to be the same and you will never forget. Again, multiply that now times three because she's not just lost a spouse, she's lost her spouse and her two sons. And you start to get a sense of the desperate times in which she lives. This beautiful love story doesn't begin like a beautiful love story. In fact, there's no thought at this point that Naomi would have any part in the lineage of King David or King Jesus. But I want to remind you that your story is not over. You see, we have just looked at the first five verses of this love story, and it looks terrible for Naomi. But we know how it turns out. We don't know how our lives are going to turn out. And if Naomi were here, and Naomi is here through this book, if Naomi were here, she would tell you God is still at work and you don't know what the future is going to hold. I'm not promising you a bright future. I'm just stating the truth that we don't know the future. So don't make the assumption that just because you're living in desperate times now, you are going to remain there. Far too many people are coming to that, to that conclusion and taking their own lives because they don't see any hope for the future. Naomi might have been in that boat, at least at this part of the story. So I don't know what you're going through, but I do know that God is in control of your story and the book of Ruth and particularly the story of Naomi confirms that. Because while this book is titled after Ruth, we tend to forget about her mother-in-law. But her story is a beautiful picture of how God can turn tragedy into triumph. And in this case, the triumph is going to be far beyond anything that Naomi could have ever thought. Well, let me move to our fourth point. One more element that describes this as desperate times, and that is spiritual compromise. You say, where do you get that? I don't see spiritual compromise in this story. Well, let's back up for a few moments. Before the two sons died, they each married Moabite women. And that is where I get this point. I also want you to see that Elimelech is not entirely to blame, or at least he's not the only one to blame for the predicament that this family is in. Because Naomi had the option when Elimelech dies to take her two sons and go back to Bethlehem, but she does not do that. She doubles down on the, in, the, in the area of the Moabites and she gets her sons married to Moabite women. Now, to be fair, this act was not expressly forbidden in the law because the Moabites were not part of the people driven out of the land of Canaan. But we've already seen that they were forbidden in the assembly of the Lord until the 10th generation. And we've already seen that there was a history of Moabite women leading Israelite men astray and into idolatry and apostasy. And we've already acknowledged that some view the purpose of this book as defending the ancestry of David since it ends with his genealogy, while others might see this book as a counterattack against what takes place in the book of Ezra. In the book of Ezra, there is this strange scene where, where Ezra forces men who have married foreign women to divorce those foreign women. And we, we have a hard time understanding that particular section. But I want you to understand that the issue of marrying outside the people of Israel was never racial. I've had that question through the years. And thankfully, that question has decreased. That is people talking about whether or not it's okay biblically to marry outside of one's race. That's never been forbidden in the Bible. 
And it was not the reason for the prohibitions we find in the Old Testament. The issue always was religious, not racial. The prohibitions we see in Scripture were due to the fact that God was concerned that if they married outside of the people of Israel, that they would be led astray into idolatry and apostasy. And that is indeed what happened over and over again. And the same is true today when it comes to the New Testament. The New Testament reminds us what fellowship has light with darkness. And that's not a derogatory comment. It's just a reminder that the spouse one chooses can have a tremendous impact upon the future of someone. As a parent, I lament the fact that I can do all that is within my power over the time that my children are in my home, and yet the person they choose to marry can have a much bigger impact and much quicker impact upon their future than I've had in those 20 plus years of raising them which is a reminder that who we choose as a spouse is supremely important. And that is why as a parent, one of our primary or the primary thing we ought to think about when it comes to our children marrying is the religious nature of the spouse that they choose. Not the appearance, not the financial backing. We focused on those things for too long. But we need to have a priority on the spiritual background of those that our children marry. The Bible does not forbid interracial or interethnic marriages, but it does forbid interreligious ones. On the other hand, there are always exceptions, and Ruth is going to prove to be that exception. How can a Moabite woman be the great grandmother of King David? Given the history of the Moabites and the prohibitions against marrying outside of Israel, this certainly seems like an impossibility. And Naomi would have thought the same thing. But God is a God of grace and mercy, and we should be thankful for that truth. So how do we reconcile what's going on in this story with those prohibitions about marrying outside the faith? How do we reconcile this story with Ezra's forcing the men to divorce the women who were foreigners. Again, I remind you that the issue was religious. And what we're going to see moving forward is that Ruth is going to forsake her foreign gods and trust in the true God. And that's why she can be the great-grandmother of King David. Desperate times call for desperate measures. But sometimes that means we have to swallow our pride like the prodigal son in the New Testament. He had to hit rock bottom before he swallowed his pride and went home. So it is with Naomi. Look at verse 6. We'll obviously look at this next week, but I want to introduce it this week. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Even as Elimelech's decision had far-reaching consequences, so will this one. Verse 6 is the beginning of hope. Verses 1 through 5 are desperate times, but verse 6, there is that glimmer of hope that God has visited his people and Naomi is going to return. But I want to ask you, what do you do during desperate times? Naomi is going to return home. A decision that will prove to be literally the decision between life and death. 
But what decision do you make? Do you run from God during desperate times or do you run to God? It is easy to run away from God. After all that has come upon you and you know that God could have chosen different circumstances for you and so you conclude that God must not love you because God allowed this or God let this happen. It is much harder to have faith in God even in the midst of desperate times. One thing I do know for sure, all of us are gonna have such times whether that's internationally or nationally or whether that's just personally. We're all going to face desperate times. The question then becomes, how are we gonna to respond to those times in our lives? Make no mistake about it, they will come. But when they do come, or maybe you're in the midst of them now, will you cling ever tighter to God in the midst of your desperate times or will you forsake him and run? The difference will make all the difference in the world. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we can study this story that took place so many years ago, teaching us so much about how you continue to work in our lives. We can identify with Naomi because we too have faced desperate times. Maybe not to the extent of the tragedies that she endured, but nevertheless, there are times when we wonder and question. And I pray during those times that we would cling to you that we as your people would not run away from you, blaming you as we go, but we would cling ever tighter to you. And then, we, then we, may we find that you are the God who provides. Give us hope in the midst of our desperate times for a brighter future, a future that includes our presence with you for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.